Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Matthew 26, starting in verse 69, and we'll be reading from there all the way to chapter 27, verse 10. So, Matthew 26, 69, all the way into chapter 27, verse 10. The sorrow of Peter and of Judas. Starting in Matthew 26, 29. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up and said to him, You are also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Verse 3 of chapter 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what happened what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price on whom uh, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would get glory for your name this morning, that you would help me to preach, that you would meet with your people today. That we would know that you are with us. Lord, not just because you have promised to be so, but Lord, that we would be able to say, God was here. We thank you, Lord, and I pray that you would move amongst us. Lord, set our hearts aright. Renew our minds through your word that we would think rightly. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us all humility to look at ourselves and see where we stand. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I was, uh, when I was directing Bible camps, I had uh, an experience that I'll, I'll never forget. It was very revealing. And it was just after the meal, and we were washing dishes in the, in the kitchen. And I asked one of the dishwashers to, uh, to be quick about it, so that they would be able to make it to chapel in time for the message, uh, for, the, for the message that the speaker was going to bring. And 
After I said that, they threw their hands up in the air and said, Oh, but I'll miss worship. I'll miss the singing. And then I, I could hear them, so I was there helping so that they could get there to the chapel. Uh, I, I could hear her the whole time grumbling under her breath and complaining about what she was going to have to do. And she did the job. And not only did she clean the dishes, she actually cleaned the dishes well. But her heart was obviously not there. All the while, one of the other uh, young ladies who was cleaning in the kitchen was uh, singing songs to herself and happily doing the dishes under the glory of God. And what I learned that moment in, in a very vivid way is it is entirely possible for two people to do the exact same things and look the exact same way and act in the same with the same actions and one of them be honoring the Lord and the other be dishonoring him one of them be be doing it because they love the Lord and they want to please him like one of the girls who washed the dishes to the glory of God singing praise in it and the other one who even though she might have done a better job, the heart wasn't there. And she grumbled and complained the entire time. Outwardly, there's no distinction. Identical actions. Identical lives in some cases. But inwardly, in the heart, couldn't be further apart. When it comes to people... In general, take, take that example of camp and now apply it to the church. You can have people who are worshiping God, who are in church all the time, who are, who are doing things they think are pleasing to Him, and be in total rebellion based on the attitude of the heart. And the Lord despises what they're doing, even if it's good. Now, nowhere in the Bible is this contrast made clearer than in the lives of Judas and of Peter. What's so, what's so striking about Judas and Peter, whom we just read about, read about their ends, it's, it's not how different they are, but how much they were alike. John MacArthur, in his commentary, he goes through and he lists the similarities. He says, both of them have the most unique opportunity ever given to any human being. They were called personally by Christ Himself. Both answered that call and followed Jesus for the duration of His ministry. For three years, Peter and Judas spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in the presence of God in the flesh. They showed repeatedly their devotion to the Lord. Every instance in the Gospels where the disciples exercised faith or some kind of trust in Jesus, Judas was there. Both of them were personally trained by the Lord for ministry. Both were sent out, given power to heal, given power to cast out demons, and both Judas and Peter preached in Jesus' name. 
They saw His divine nature expressed every day. They saw His power over disease. They saw Him restore limbs that were missing. They saw Him uh, feed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Both were in the boat when He caused the storm to stop. Both saw Him raise Lazarus from the grave. They heard Him answer every theological question perfectly. Both witnessed Him read the hearts and minds of those around Him. They heard Him teach about sin, about heaven, about hell, about God. They heard the parables and the warnings. Both saw Him confound the wisest religious scholars of the day over and over again. And you can say about Judas and Peter, (coughs) they were both exposed to Jesus in the exact same identical way. And in our passage this morning, both of them knew that they were sinners. Both of them expressed and experienced overwhelming grief and sorrow. Both of them had betrayed the Lord and both were devastated by what they've done. And yet, in spite of his wicked behavior, his betrayal of the Savior, one is considered so honorable and so exalted an individual that millions of people have been named after him throughout the centuries. Cities have been named after him. He is loved and remembered as one of the greatest Christians who has ever lived. And his name is Peter. The rock. The other is considered so dishonorable and so despicable that even though his name means praise, nobody here has his name. Nobody knows anyone who has his name. No one would dare name their children after him. And in some countries, if you write this name on the birth certificate, it's illegal. It's a name. Judas. It's the most hated and reviled name in all the world. One of these individuals was restored, and his life ended being crucified upside down to the glory of God, and the other ended in suicide where the man hanged himself to his everlasting shame. One of them belongs to Christ, and we will meet him one day in heaven. The other will only be met by those who reject Christ and find themselves in hell, because that's where He is. They are separated as far as anyone can be separated. They are as far as heaven is from hell. (laughs) They couldn't have been more similar. They could not have ended up more differently. This is a danger that many in the church face. There's an outward appearance of devotion. They look like Christians. They might even think they're Christians and are deceived into believing that they're saved when the reality is they're walking the path of Judas more than the path of Peter. You say, how can can we tell the difference? If outwardly they look the same, how can you distinguish between the two? Well, I can't. And neither can anyone else by looking at you. And you say, well, by their fruit you shall know them. Nobody suspected Judas to be the betrayer. Nobody except God and Judas. Because God knows and you know if you 
humbly examine yourself according to Scripture. One of the things that reveals this more than anything else is when you are grieved. That's what we saw in this passage, wasn't it? The sorrow of Judas and Peter because of what they've done. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, <coughs> he says, worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance and life. Anguish and sorrow are like the fire that reveals the quality of your faith. They test it to see what it's made of. And you find yourself sorrowing. You find yourself grieved. That's one of the things that will separate people. It's like a, it, it is like a fire that refines. It's like Peter says elsewhere in Corinthians, you'll find out if the life that you've built is made of gold or hay when the fire passes over it and you'll see what's left. Is it worldly or is it godly? It's one of the easiest ways to tell. And you see it played out in the lives of these two men. Peter. We read last week that he found a way to get into the courtyard of the house where the trial of Jesus was being held. John uh, actually got him in. Peter wanted to see how things would turn out. He goes, he asks John. John gets him in because Peter wants to see, we're told, the end. He wants to know what will happen to Jesus. And so Peter gains access to a place where he can hear the outcome of the trial. He's warming himself by the fire. It's a cold night. Probably not as cold as this, but still cold. And there, in the flickering light, a servant girl recognizes him. He was, after all, Jesus' number one disciple. And so she comes over and she asks, Aren't you one of those men who was with Jesus? When she says this, eyes start to look at Peter, the eyes that are of those who are gathered around the fire. They, they fix their gaze on him. Peter, he doesn't know how to respond. He's, he's in danger. Maybe they'll hand him over to the Sanhedrin too. And so he denies it. Just, no, no, I, d I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this Jesus. So he's disturbed, obviously, because he, he now moves away from the fire and goes to the gate, to the outside of the courtyard. He goes away from the group, some of whom were certainly part of the mob that arrested Jesus. Doesn't want to be identified. And so now he's out by the entrance to the courtyard where it's colder, where he thinks he's anonymous, but another servant recognizes him. This time she doesn't confront him. She just shouts out to the whole crowd. says, this is one of the men who was with him. This is him. This is Peter. Panic begins to set in. Peter's in trouble. So what's he do? Well, this time he denies once more with an oath. Upon heaven and earth, I told you already, I swear, I do not know him. Well, this is enough for the crowd. It's dark. Besides, it's hard to tell who he is anyway. And so they leave him alone again. And some time passes. Certainly the crowd, they're, they're talking about this. They're pointing. A commotion is growing. Peter doesn't want to be discovered. But he can't avoid it. This time it's a personal matter. Someone recognizes his accent, but not just anyone. John tells us it was a cousin of Malchus, 
The cousin of the man whose ear Peter lopped off in the garden. He recognizes him because of his accent. He says, I know you. I can tell a Galilean from a mile away. And you're one of them. Your accent betrays you. And besides, I saw you there in the garden. There's no escape this time. All eyes are on Peter. He's frantic. He's frightened. And so he answers, this time not with boldness. He answers with a curse upon himself. He would rather be condemned than his affiliation to Christ be found out. And so he denies the Lord with the strongest possible language. Let me be cursed and let me be damned if I am a Christian. If what you say is true, let me be condemned. I do not know Jesus. And then the rooster crows. And Luke 22 tells us Jesus was there, just inside from the courtyard. And as they're marching him off to Pilate, he hears the final denial of Peter. He hears the rooster crows. And Luke tells us he looks straight at Peter. And when he does, all the weight of Peter's denial, it comes crashing down upon his head like a mountain falling over. His soul is crushed. What he has done, he, he realizes, you've, you've had this before, you've, been, you've done something, and then you've done it again, and you've done it, and you've not feel, felt that bad about it. You haven't really felt the guilt of it, but then in an instant, it all becomes obvious what you've done. That's what happens to Peter. And now he runs out of the courtyard, runs to a place where no one will find him, and weeps bitterly. And in Matthew's Gospel, this is the last we hear about Peter. And we know from other Gospels he turns. We know that Jesus said he would turn. We're told that in Luke. But in Matthew's Gospel, this is it for, bold, this is it for Peter. He's weeping bitterly by himself. Now Jesus has promised to meet him again. He tells Peter, even earlier in Matthew, he'll go ahead of them to Galilee. So the implication is this is not the end. But Matthew doesn't tell us about that happening. Matthew's Gospel leaves Peter overwhelmed with grief. Judas, however, he has no such hope. He was gone by the time the Lord made the promise that he would go ahead of them to Galilee. He, by this time, had gone to find the chief priests and sell Jesus out. And he did, for 30 pieces of silver. And now, Judas also sees Jesus condemned. And we don't know if he was there in the courtyard or, or in the courtroom itself, or if he heard the verdict as they were marching Jesus now off to Pilate, the governors, but he knows they've declared him guilty. And when he finds out, Judas starts to have second thoughts. Now, maybe he didn't expect this to happen. Maybe he, he didn't want Jesus killed. He just wanted, maybe he just wanted the 30 pieces and didn't think beyond that. Doesn't matter. 
Jesus is being marched out to be sentenced, and Judas sees it, and Judas is filled with remorse and regret for what Judas has done. He is disgusted with himself. He wants to undo it. He wants to alleviate his guilty conscience. He wants to try and right the wrong. And so he goes back to the chief priests, back to the the Sanhedrin, and he confesses their sin, his sin. He says, I have sinned. That's what he tells them. I have sinned. I have condemned an innocent man. He owns up to it. They don't care. They pretend. They they make a big deal about the money they paid out. We can't use it in the temple because it's blood money and their hypocrisy in this is staggering. When you throw your lot in with ruthless, murderous hypocrites, you shouldn't be surprised when they turn on you. They turn on Judas. This is not our problem. That's what they tell him. Not, Not our problem. You betrayed him. Deal with it yourself. And so he throws the money into the temple, into the treasury. He gets rid of it as violently as he can. The money sickens him. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He wants to remove from himself every reminder of what he's done. And then he goes out. He finds a ravine. And he goes to hang himself. But the branch breaks and he falls and he bursts open. You know what stands out when you read the accounts of Judas and Peter? Judas' reaction to his sin and to his guilt? It's a lot stronger than Peter's, isn't it? I mean, Peter doesn't do anything in terms of righting the wrong. Even afterward, it's Jesus who goes to Peter, not Peter who goes to Jesus. Look at Judas. He's deeply grieved over what he's done. He confesses his sin to the high priests. He declares that Jesus is innocent. He admits that he's handed him over wrongly. And he tries to make things right. He gives back the money. He's disgusted with what he's done. All Peter does is go out into a place by himself and cry. So why is Judas lost and Peter saved? Why is one of these men honored and the other condemned? And how can it be when each of them had had similar reactions to their guilt, both responded with intense sorrow? Well, what makes the difference? There are differences. And these differences are the difference between godly sorrow that leads to life and worldly sorrow that leads to death. They are the difference between outward actions, in this case, sorrow and remorse, being pleasing to God or reprehensible. The first difference is Judas works for his atonement. Now, atonement, if you don't know what that word means, it means to cover or the paying of a sin. And all of Judas' activity, everything that Judas is doing, is to make up for what he's done on his own. But when you try to pay for your own sin by your own good works, and you try to amass those as a covering for your guilt, you are engaging an impossible task. But that is the atonement of worldly sorrow. I've done something wrong, so now it's up to me to make things right. Judas was full of it. Full of worldly sorrow. When he confronted the high priests, 
They answered and told him, Deal with your guilt yourself. And that's exactly what he did. He dealt with it himself. He dealt with his sorrow in a worldly, godless way. First, he confesses to the priests. But first John 1.19 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But they must be confessed to Him. Judas went to the wrong people. He went to the only ones he could think of. He certainly wasn't going to go to God. There was no confession of sins to Him. And you say, why is this a problem? Because he hadn't sinned against the high priests. He'd sinned against the Lord. But worldly sorrow, the one thing it cannot do is confess to God. It cannot. If it wrongs somebody else, it, 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 if it wrongs anything, if it does something it knows it should not do, worldly sorrow will not bring you to prayer saying, God, against you and you only have I sinned. You might confess your sins to yourself. might confess your sins on social media. might confess them to friends. might even confess them to pets. But never confess them to the one whose laws have been broken. Worldly sorrow leads to a worldly confession. Two, he had a wrong repentance. He changed his mind about what he'd done, to be sure. But only because he didn't want a conscience stained with the guilt of murder. He didn't want the blood of an innocent man on his hands. And who would? There's no sense of sinning against God. It's, it's almost as if Judas sinned against himself, right? Broke his own standards. Couldn't believe what he'd done. Which is how most people in the world view sin and guilt today. How could I have done something like this? Their consciences are troubled and they know that they're guilty, and they know they've sinned, and they know they've done wrong, but their concern is not being restored to God whom they've offended, but the alleviation of their conscience so that they can feel better about themselves. I, I need to make this right. Why? So I won't feel bad anymore. It's a worldly repentance born from a worldly sorrow, and all it seeks is the alleviation of the conscience. It can't alleviate the conscience, by the way. Because the conscience isn't troubled just because it's done wrong. The conscience is troubled because it's broken the law of God. And then Judas makes atonement on his own. And self-atonement is never enough. We as Christians, we're commanded to go and make things right when there's wrong. But don't think for a moment that that is what deals with the guilt. It doesn't. Self-atonement can't do it. What does Judas do? He gives the money back to try to erase the guilt. Can't erase the guilt. The sin of, of men and women is a moral debt and it cannot be repaid materially. Cannot be repaid by confessing. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. I want you to imagine you're standing in line in, in an ice cream shop, and there in front of you is a little boy, and he gets up and he asks for one scoop of ice cream, and the person behind the counter takes a scoop, puts it in the cone, gives it to the little boy, and, he, and says, that'll be $2, please. 
And the little boy's head hangs down and he's holding the cone. He, he lifts the cone back up. He says, but my mommy only gave me one dollar. Well, you're there in line behind the boy. What are you going to do? You're going to give him a dollar. Unless you're some kind of monster, you're going to give him the dollar. The owner will have to accept it. It's legal tender. The debt is paid. It's a, a legal transaction. Now, the cone, because of the dollar you've given, belongs to the boy. The debt was paid. That's how most people think about sin. It's like a financial debt that I owed, and now it's been paid. It's more than that. It's not quite like what I just described. So let me, let me take you back into the ice cream shop, and I want you to imagine the scenario again. This time, though, the owner, he steps out back in behind the shop, and the little boy, when he sees the owner step behind, runs around the counter, grabs a scoop, takes a scoop of ice cream, puts it in the cone, and then heads for the door. And before he does, the man behind the counter comes back, catches him, grabs him by the collar, pulls him back in. Totally different kind of debt has been incurred. Police officer's outside. He comes in. He saw what happened. What do you do? You say... Uh, here, I have two dollars. I'll buy the ice cream cone for the boy. What's the officer going to say? He's going to ask the owner, will you accept this as payment for the cone? It's not like now you're buying the cone for the boy who didn't have enough money. A moral debt has been incurred. And the man who owns the store is not obligated to accept the $2 cost of the cone because the, the debt morally incurred, it's not, it's not even on the same level. It's a different kind of debt. Before, it was just financial. Before, the boy didn't have to, enough money to pay for what he'd purchased. It was a transaction. The owner gets the money, the boy gets the ice cream. The second time, it's very different. The second time, the owner has been sinned against. The law was broken, and the debt incurred was far more serious than the $2 cost of the cone. Really, the, the two debts, they are on two entirely different levels. It's a matter of degree, and the payment of the price of the cone does not have to, the ability to eliminate the debt of the theft. Do you know what worldly sorrow does? It tries to erase the debt of sin as if it were a transaction. Two dollars here, a good work there, and it's enough. Give the money back. That'll fix everything. Do something to try and earn forgiveness and clear away the guilt. It's the prevailing doctrine of atonement in our day because everybody knows they're guilty and have sinned. Everybody can say, I have done wrong, but my good will cover it. Balance it out in the scales. Do you know where that leads? It either leads to a self-deceiving self-righteousness where the person thinks they're a whole lot better than they are or the person realizes what maybe you realized and that's that good works can never 
cleanse a guilty conscience. And some even in an effort to make this guilt go away in a final desperate attempt at atonement, the individual ends their own lives in suicide. Worldly sorrow leads to death. There are all kinds, I don't know if you know this, all kinds of religions in the world that teach there are certain sins, if you commit them, the only way you can be sure they're forgiven is by killing yourself. Mormons believe this. This is why terrorists blow themselves up. Not just terrorists. In, in Scotland years ago, uh, a doctor, medical doctor, well off, set off a car bomb in an airport. Why? Because his conscience could not be free from guilt. And then by trying to, by trying to make amends, There are a lot of people like that in the world today. My fear is there are people like Judas here in the church. They feel terrible because of their sin. They know they've done what's wrong. They're guilty. It eats them alive. But how do they deal with it? They deal with it by trying to make amends by putting themselves into a spiritual time out to try to atone for their sin, by trying to rebalance the scales with good works in their favor, and they try to pay back those they've wronged. They try to undo what they did. They have a, a, a really dire sense of their guilt. But there's little concern that it's against God. They don't confess to Him. They don't ask Him for forgiveness. If they can make their guilty feelings go away, it's good enough for them whether or not the sin is actually dealt with. Listen, you don't need to atone for your sins because Christ has atoned for them for you. You only need to ask and to believe and it's given if you're a Christian because forgiveness from God it's not based on you making amends. It's not based on you earning it. It's not based on you turning over a new leaf or becoming a better person. Forgiveness from God is not based on you righting the wrongs that you've done. It's based on you trusting the sufficient atonement of Christ and going to Him for forgiveness. And until you believe this, you're, you're, you're going to have a hard time. If you wonder why you struggle so much to forgive others... It's probably because you don't know how generously and liberally you have been forgiven. You don't know how graciously God has dealt with you, separating from you your sins as far as the East is from the West. And when you do, you'll be able to forgive as you've been forgiven. But you can only be forgiven from a God if you have a godly sorrow. And a godly sorrow is motivated by love for Him. That's the second difference between worldly and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is born out of a love for God. This is why Judas deals with the sin the way he does. Because in his sorrow, and in his confession, and in everything he does, there's no love for God. Judas never loved Jesus. Judas feels sorry for Judas. Guilt and sorrow alone are no sign of a work of God in the life. Grief over sin is no sign of grace in the heart. 
There are millions of people in this world who feel terrible over what they've done. And they would never call upon Christ. They hate Him. Even though they are overwhelmed with guilt for things they've done they know are wrong. Just consider Judas. You say, how do we know Judas doesn't love Jesus? He acted the same way Peter did. Well, consider Judas before the betrayal. Every time he's mentioned, what do you see? Judas was greedy. Judas was a liar. Judas was a thief. Judas was pretending the entire time. And when Judas' evil broke out, he wasn't backsliding. It wasn't like he became something he wasn't. It's like Judas is wearing a hypocritical mask. And when he goes out to betray Christ, his, his wicked intentions break through. It's like the mask comes off and his evil comes out. But Peter's failures, and they were severe, it was not a wicked man unleashing his evil, but a wretched man succumbing to his body of death. He was, Peter was, a genuine lover of Christ. And the fact that his sin was against Christ cut him to his very heart. Peter loved the Lord. Just look at his conduct leading up to his failure. He follows the Lord at a distance. And even though it was at a distance, he followed the Lord where all others, save John, had fled. In the garden, he risks his life for Jesus and even though he misunderstood the mission of Christ, Peter alone draws the sword and charges into a massive, well-armed crowd by himself. I mean, if nothing else, Peter is courageous. He told the Lord he would die for him, and when the time came to prove it, he proved it. As mistaken as he was. He couldn't bear not to see the outcome of the trial. And after fleeing in the garden, he doubled back and sneaked in to be near to Jesus. There's much to say in Peter's defense. And then at the pressure of a small group of servants and some of the mob that arrested him, he disowned him. He forsook him. He was proud. He thought too highly of himself. He failed to watch and pray, and so he fell. But he didn't fall off of Christ by His grace, He only fell upon Him. And Peter's grief was not because Peter realized how evil he was, even though he did. And Peter's grief wasn't because his conscience was deeply troubled, though it was. Peter's grief cried out, My Lord and my God, how could I have betrayed this betrayed you and done this to you who have been so kind to me. And in Peter's restoration, what's the question that Peter asks, uh, Jesus asks him? Three times. Peter, do you love me? And for each denial, Peter reaffirms, not his resolve, not his commitment, not his grief over what he did, what he'd done, but he affirms his love for Jesus. And as many times he denied him, he confesses his love for him. That's the reality for a true believer. 
love for Christ. The love of Christ compels them. They confess their sins because they realize their sins are against Him. They go to Him for atonement because they trust in His finished work. Their lives, for all of eternity, are bound up in Christ. That's what makes the difference between a Peter and a Judas. Love for Jesus. Guilt over sin does not produce true repentance in true Christians. You understand this. Peter and Judas both had guilt over their sin. Sin and guilt, knowing that you have done what is wrong and feeling bad about it, are no indication you're a Christian. That's just the normal human response when people have done wrong. It's how they should feel. And it can produce regret and remorse and deep sadness. But you know what it can't produce? Genuine repentance. What makes a person repentant, what makes a person a Christian, is not to see your sin, but to see your Savior. And that's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And that's the difference between Peter and Judas. And that's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the only place where true relief from guilt can be found. It's the only place true forgiveness can be found. And it's the only place anyone will ever be truly free of their guilt. Love for Christ, their Savior. Do you love Him this morning? Have you put your trust and hope in Him? Has your sorrow and the trials of this life led you closer to Him? or drawn you further away. And if you have forgotten His forgiveness, then come to Him anew that this would be a time of renewal and refreshing of your soul from the Lord. A time where you will renew your love for your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All who come to Him, He will in no wise turn away. Don't go on trying to atone for what you've done by yourself. Come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and He will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your grace. It is like a mighty river. Lord, You will not be mocked. You will sift the hearts of every man and every woman. Lord, and You will test them to show what is right. Thank You, Father, that You are so kind as to reveal it to us now that any who walk the way of Judas would be warned and spared that dreadful judgment. Thank You, Lord, for Peter's example that even though we fall, if we are in Christ, Lord, You hold us and we cannot fall away from You, but only on top of You. I pray that you would be with your people in Christ's name. Amen.